Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. I'm Donald McIntyre and this is Murderers and Their Mothers, the companion podcast to the CBS reality series, which airs every Sunday at 10pm. Now, throughout this series, we're investigating some of the world's most notorious killers and asking, were these murderers born evil or did their relationships with their mothers make them into monsters? On today's episode, we look at the case of Adam Lanza, the 20-year-old who, on the 14th of December 2012, committed one of the world's most shocking shooting sprees. In just under 11 minutes, he took the lives of 20 first-grade pupils and six adults at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, USA. He also murdered his mother as she lay sleeping in her bed. But why? Well, joining me to discuss the Adam Lanza case are Professor Elizabeth Yardley, Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. Welcome, Liz. Hi. And also joining us on the line from the USA is Dr. Barbara Kerwin, a clinical forensic psychologist. Welcome, Barbara, to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, let's take a look at his childhood. And what was evident very early on was that Adam had various behaviour and communication problems. Naturally concerned, his parents took him to be assessed at the state's early intervention centre. Barbara, what were the early indications that something wasn't quite right with Adam? Well, Adam had a whole panoply of deficiencies and disorders. He was very delayed in his speech. He had trouble articulating. He had motor coordination things. He didn't walk until he was much older. He had tantrums. He had behavioral discontrol. He had really along the whole range of cognitive delays, of socialization delays, of uh, physical problems, of motor delays. There was an awful lot across a broad spectrum of things that just made Adam Lanza different and made Adam Lanza fall behind. Liz, presumably his parents appeared to do the right thing in seeking early professional help. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think part of the role of, of what we expect a good parent to be is to flag up when your child has difficulties, they're having developmental delays and that kind of thing to, to reach out and to seek help. But I wonder, was the, the early the, the early um, assessments of him, whether they were just, just standard assessments that are carried out on all children or, or were they you know specifically for, for Adam, especially the, the, the very early one when he's only, say, three or four years old? I note that in that early one in the study and the report and afterwards, they say, although there were concerns, you know, he did seem to be socialising reasonably well, although Adam's parents appeared to conceptualise him as intellectually gifted, he didn't appear to be particularly so and quite average. So I wonder how profound those difficulties were, Barbara. Well, I think what is really a problem here, and it's more than a problem just for Adam's family, it's kind of a social problem in terms of the delivery of psychological services in the U.S., There is a tremendous disconnect. Adam had very serious emotional, cognitive, behavioral problems. But what his mother did was take him to an educational setting. Now, the people who make assessments in the educational settings are trained professionals, but they are trained to find out about academic deficiencies, about speech deficiencies. They're really not trained, nor are they looking for much more serious psychiatric problems. And so what he was given was what was called an IEP, an Individual Educational Program. And I can't even see in any of the records at that time that he was even seen by a child psychiatrist or child psychologist. So it's sort of the old cliche, if your only tool is a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. And you were also up against Mrs. Lanza's absolute denial, which you see so much in the clinical setting with a parent who has a child, a child they love, a child of promise, and then there are all of these problems. So she wasn't taking him to the places where she might find the answers that she really dreaded. And she was also kind of compensating by describing some of his aberrant and peculiar behaviors as he was gifted. And there is no indication that he had anything other than an average level of intelligence. Barbara, we've been looking at a theory here in relation to a little bit of Nancy Lanza's behaviour. And it does pay some homage to this, the label and concerns of labelling and the fact she sought help in the wrong place. Liz? Yeah, I mean, we've been having a look back, haven't we, at at what's happened over the years and and looking at Nancy's behaviour at various different points in time. And and it seems to me that she's she's reaching out for for help for him, but she's holding that off when it gets to a particular point in time. Um, So, you know, he'll be assessed by somebody and and help will be offered, but it will be refused. But so she's engaging with services, but but not always, you know, using them to, to their full extent. And the interesting thing for me was that the, the local support groups um, available for parents of, of autistic children and children with, with, with developmental issues, she gave those quite a wide berth. And I thought that was quite interesting because you know parents of, of children with developmental issues with, with autism always say how crucial the support of other parents is. So the fact that she really stayed well clear of that type of thing. Did you feel that she was afraid of the label and that she was chasing help from people who wouldn't pry too deeply or would, you know, that she felt wouldn't quite give her the diagnosis she didn't want for her son? 
Nancy wasn't wrapped too tightly, <laughs> to use a kind of gauche expression. She had her own issues. She had somatic complaints that may or may not have been reality-based. And I think she was superficially uh, showing the community that she was concerned about her son, but she really was afraid of the label. In my practice, we refer to a label which I believe later on described Adam Lanz as a schizophrenic spectrum disorder as the S word because uh, practitioners are really afraid to pin that label because it does have such a, uh, a dire sense about it. And so they will use lesser terms, which probably describe features of schizophrenic spectrum disorders, but are treated differently, have a different prognosis. And I think that really interferes with the ability of children who are showing really, really serious symptoms early on from getting the kind of intervention that they need. For example, he was diagnosed as attention deficit hyperactive disorder. He was having tantrums. He was diagnosed as autism. All of those things can also refer to some of the positive and negative symptoms that you see in schizophrenic spectrum disorder. Liz, how unusual behaviour was this for a five-year-old child? I think we've, we've got to look at it in, in context, really. So how do children behave when they don't get things that they want? You know, often they will kick off and, and have tantrums. And it, it is easy to explain children's behaviour away as the terrible kind of twos, you know, we use that term. But they can still be doing that at, at four and five as well. Well, you know, another thing you don't know, you're looking at the records that are reported from the observers in school. There is no indication really of what kind of behavior that Adam was showing at home because what Nancy was doing was the more that Adam could not accommodate to his environment, the more Nancy accommodated the environment to him. In an effort to try and improve Adam's social interactivity and to improve his behavioural issues, his parents enrol him in various activities and clubs, including the Cubs, where he comes into contact with guns. Uh, Liz, his mother Nancy is keen for him to join clubs, and on the face of it, it seems like a good idea. But nobody on this side of the Atlantic you know, can imagine that guns should be part of this equation. I mean, we've got to put it in context, haven't we? we we've got to remember that yes. Nancy is from New Hampshire. It's the, the live free or die state. And, and, and people in that, that part of the US are, are incredibly, you know, def- defensive and protective over, over their, their right to bear arms. And it, it's very much cultural. So I don't, the, the degree to which it, it's unusual, I think we've always got to be careful of what we're comparing it to. Barbara, at the age of five, he's taking up shooting with his mom. I mean, how significant is this? Is this unusual or standard? Well, I think what Liz is saying is absolutely spot on. You cannot deprive Americans, I mean, we are the people who brought you the Wild West, of their guns. And New Hampshire is uh, part of a hunting culture. Actually, the the, uh, prevalence of gun crime in New Hampshire is very, very low. But the Cub Scouts, which then, of course, leads to the Boy Scouts, is a real, you know, solid American organization that does a lot of good in the community. 
And uh, they do have a merit badge for rifle shooting, and they do take children. I'm not sure if it's as young as five, because that would be the tiger cubs. It would be Cub Scouts, which would be about age seven or eight. But they do take them out. They do teach them gun safety. They do use, you know, small, like 22 weapons and teach them to shoot. It's kind of unusual for Nancy as a female and to be so involved in guns. But Nancy came from a police background. I believe she had brothers who were in the police department. So that fascination with guns is does have a very different context in the U.S. than it would anywhere in the UK. Did she see his issue with firing guns as completely separate from any of his behavioural issues or did she see it in fact as an opportunity to create a bond, to distract him, to engage his focus? Well, I think all of that. I think she thought she was doing something very good for him, put him in the Cub Scouts, let him become involved in these activities. But I think at some level she might have been thinking This is a child who is different. This is a child who may be picked on. This is a child who doesn't fit in. So if we empower him with a firearm, after all, we call firearms equalizers, he will be able to protect himself at some point in time should he need to. So I think that was perhaps part of her subliminal thinking. Do you think a sense that, Liz, that she was also creating a narrative that he was going to be good at something? There may be deficiencies across a range of areas, but hey, he was a good shooter. Mm. And I think it did fuel some of the ambitions that, that we know he, he later went on to have. And there was um, a, a guy within the, the wider family. It was Nancy's, Nancy's brother, Uncle Jim, who was in the military. And, and, and Adam really looked up to him and, and he had military ambitions. This was what he wanted to do. Um, so I think it was it was about creating you know those kind of masculine manly activities and also about you know living up to role model. In 1998, Adam's dad gets a new, better paid job, which results in the family moving to Newtown, Connecticut, and the six-year-old Adam is enrolled in first grade at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. Now, the school move, Liz, like this, it can upset any child. But it appears that Adam isn't too upset by this move. Yeah, lots of children experience this, don't they? Having to to move because of mum's job or dad's job and having to adapt to to a new environment. So so whilst it's an upheaval, it's not an unusual one. And uh, it's one that he doesn't seem to have really kicked off about. That, That to me is sort of a differentiating diagnostic indicator. He doesn't react to being changed to the school to a different school district so that's a, because a, yes. one of the cardinal features of autism spectrum is that inflexibility, that inability to uh, manage change and the behavior will be extremely dysfunctional and there'll be a lot of acting out when there is even the slightest change. But with Adam, I think you're starting to see this schizophrenic spectrum behavior in the sense that he's disengaged. He's removed from his environment. He's attuned more to his inner surgencies and his inner thoughts, his inner environment. Or 
he's not as his issues aren't quite as profound as others thought, or he's not necessarily, you know, on the uh, autism spectrum as people kind of suggested afterwards. Well, you know, there's what I call designer diagnoses or diagnoses du jour. The mental health community is influenced by what the media presents and what gets attention and what gets funding at that time. So around that time, everybody was being diagnosed with Asperger's, and a great percentage of those children later on grew up to be diagnosed with other mental health issues. In terms of what was happening at the time, we, we know Nancy was having her own issues. She appeared stressed, and she pays for a private neurological exam. What was going on in her life in relation to these suggestions to her friends that she had this life-threatening illness? Yeah, there were there were various um, email exchanges um, back and forth with her old friends in New Hampshire. And it, in one of those exchanges, um, she claimed to have this incurable autoimmune disease. Um, but as we know, there's, there's been no kind of medical evidence to, to back that up. And it's, it's that's not the only time that, that she, she claims that, that she's suffering from this. I mean, Barbara, it must be significant that Nancy is, for want of a better word, inventing these psychosomatic illnesses and problems and to seek attention or for whatever reason with friends. What was going on in her world and how was that impacting upon Adam? Well, Nancy's world was changing and collapsing. She lost her husband, her marriage, even though she had the financial wherewithal. But when you look at a disorder like what Adam has, you always have to look back at that nature-nurture situation. And I believe that what Nancy was expressing was very close to a somatic delusion. There was no medical evidence that, or there was inconclusive medical evidence that she did have MS or some other type of autoimmune dysfunction. She certainly was not disabled by it or symptomatic. She certainly wasn't following through with any medications or treatments. And so what you often see is that there is that genetic basis in a first-degree relative. I believe that Nancy had um, schizophrenic spectrum disorder at a much milder degree, and then that also caused her not only to, to give that genetic predisposition to Adam, but also to create a world that was, you know, very disturbed. And so what you had for Adam was he didn't have a chance right from the beginning. I mean, when she was writing to her friends about how well Adam was doing, in the face of non-corroborative evidence or no evidence, I would have to say she was exaggerating or fabricating that. Very interesting. painting a, a rosy picture. And, you know, in the absence of anybody saying, yes, we went to parties with Adam and he was a charming little boy, I would find that highly suspect. So at this stage, Liz, we have a child with behavioural issues, a mother with emotional issues, and a workaholic dad who was a bit detached. Mm. It was a toxic mix. Yeah, I think Adam's being targeted by Nancy for excessive attention, hypervigilance, and, and that wasn't the case with, with Adam's brother. And there's, there's that mutual codependency that, that seems to have, have developed you know, at that point in time, which never really goes away. 
Now, moving on, in 2002, when Adam was nine, his parents finally divorced. Nancy's mother is now the sole carer and the person most responsible for controlling and managing Adam's various issues. His mother is very controlling and often emails the school with advice on how she believes Adam should be managed. Here's forensic psychologist Louise Schlesinger. The mother did what I think she thought was best. Uh, She said he didn't like structure, he liked support, which basically means leave him alone because if you try to instill some sort of structure or rules, he may get uh, explosive or may have a temper tantrum. And this is one way to avoid that. In terms of her emails to the school, was she giving good advice to the school or bad advice? Well, I think, of course, 2020 hindsight, uh, given the massacre that was later perpetrated by Adam, that was very, very bad advice because it was, again, saying society should accommodate Adam's unwillingness or inability to fit in with polite society, that there was a different set of rules for Adam and there are no consequences when he transgresses those rules. And that's never good to do to anybody, no matter what their disability is. They must be accommodated to fit in, not to sort of operate against society. Why does Nancy Lanza believe that she knows best when it comes to Adam? You know, is there something pathological about that, her obsession with that, or is that just like any other parent? No, I think Nancy is a very pathological parent. There is something obsessive. She has jumped out of her own life and just gotten inside of Adam and melded with him in such an entangled way They've simply grown together as one organism. Adam Lanza, as a separate human being, has practically ceased to exist. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I think in some ways he expresses uh, Nancy's own anger. And so there's no escape for Adam at this point. It is just, just so powerful, isn't it, is his silence. I mean, where is his voice in all of this? Nancy's taken on this role as his advocate and that's that's something that, that she's been doing for, for quite a few years. So so we know that when he went to, to one of the, the early assessments when he was just a toddler, that she was having to kind of interpret for him. So she's speaking for him, she's speaking on his behalf and, and he seems to be totally silent in all of this. Well, by the time Adam reaches fourth grade or around the age of 10, his treatment is withdrawn at school as he's deemed to have met all the goals set for speech and motor skills. Now, Liz, should this have happened? 
Well, you've got to think what kind of setting we're in. I mean, as we've been saying, this is an educational setting and they're going to be measuring children's educational performance. So so perhaps they, they, they simply weren't looking for, for anything out of the ordinary in that regard. There's another issue here is that we have very, very strong problems with people litigating and mal- medical malpractice. And school psychologists and school personnel are not permitted to diagnose. That is against the law for them to do. And they've been dealing with Nancy now for a long, long time. And they know if they were to stick their necks out and say, yes, he's doing okay academically, but we really feel there are some other problems, hell would rain down on them. So they kind of just say, well, there's nothing we can do. We leave this up to the psychiatric establishment and walk away. So there was, in essence, there was a path of least resistance. And of course... Precisely. And Nancy, you know, didn't want any more treatment to continue because she didn't want the label. And if she sought any more expert treatment, Liz, she would lose control. Yeah, the, the more scrutiny you invite into your child's life and, and your family's life, you know, the, the 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 more that you lose control over that that situation as as other people kind of weigh in on on what it is that's that's going on there. Barbara, looking back at Adam's childhood, we need to discuss the book he wrote, age ten, entitled "The Big Book of Granny," and large parts of it are innocent enough, with sections about jokes and adventures, but there are also shocking anecdotes about Granny's son drowning her and characters playing a game of hide and go die. Now, it's not unusual for kids to engage with issues of dark violence and nightmares and it is the stuff of fairy tales. But what what concerns you about the this big book of Granny Barbara? Well, I mean, he was completely obsessing about it. And again, it's taken in the context of he's not relating to people, he's not controlling his impulses. He's not communicating, and yet here we have a sample of what's going on in his fantasy life. And one of the things that we know about people who later on commit these kinds of really, really horrendous, violent crimes is that there's no controls on their thinking, and it was already leaking out there. You know, uh, a lot of um, schizophrenics will say, if you think about it a lot, eventually you will have to do it. Whereas normal people have all kinds of violent impulses, but they're able to check those impulses. I think another thing is that uh, American popular culture, and certainly the area of gaming, is so infused with um, guns and violence that I think educators and parents and the powers that be have just become satiated with it. They're, they completely ignore it. I had a young man who wrote an essay in high school outlining what he was going to do with the massive amount of assault weapons he had. He got an A on the paper. Later on, he came into treatment, and he, it was around the time of the Columbine massacre, and he said if his parents hadn't taken him to a psychiatrist at that time, he had impulses to go back to the school and do what the shooters did at Columbine. So, I mean, it's extraordinary, Liz, that nobody picked up on these huge red flags in this book. Uh, one, because people are inured can kind of nearly by the amount of wealth of violence in children's narratives and games. Um, but Nancy herself didn't, you know, spark or any moments of concern about this. 
it, it's interesting when you, you think about how uh, prolific you know, images of violence have, have become, you know, access to, to violent video games and, and that kind of thing. And and what what kind of normalising is going on within families and, and how are parents gauging whether what their children are doing is, is unusual compared to others. So, so for it not to have been flagged up and just explained away and normed out... Um, you know, potentially that that is something that that was just going to happen. Yeah, normed out is a very good phrase. We are aware that he did write the book with another student, um, but even still, did that mean that it didn't quite get the attention it should have deserved? Where does well, the blame? Well, I, be- I believe that the other student who was contacted in this investigation was or had been in a psychiatric institute for most of his life following that. Yes. So what you had is two very, very disturbed young men seeking out each other's company, connecting around these images of violence and revenge. Nancy decides Adam needs more help and takes him to an emergency room for a crisis evaluation. Yeah, this this is quite a significant event, isn't it? To to take your your child to the the emergency room, it, it's quite a big thing. It's quite a a, a big decision to to make. Um, and in terms of of why he was he was there, you know, she was saying he's he's kicking off. Um, his his behaviour is becoming incredibly erratic. So so what was going on here? Was she reaching out for help, or, or was it something? else. Well, it seems that she was trying to get him excused from school. So she was manipulating the situation at every turn, manipulating Eeyore when she could, manipulating the teachers and even community psychologists, Barbara. Yes, I I think that that was exactly what was going on. Because in general, when you go to an ER and you complain of of various problems, most likely you're not even going to see a psychiatrist because there's generally not even one on the staff. So she went and told this tale and could manipulate the whole system. She probably was even seeing interns or residences. I mean, emergency room care is about the lowest standard of uh, comprehensive medical care you can get in the States. It's very fragmented. And I think she believed as long as she had that note, she could keep him home, have total control of him. And frankly, I think the school authorities were at their wit's end. They couldn't make any headway in in really intervening with Adam. And I think she created such a ruckus that, again, it was the path of least resistance. She wants to keep him home. There's nothing we can do for him. Let him go home. Well, she, it does appear at some stage, at age 13, he's eventually diagnosed, gets a diagnosis with Asperger's, and he's permanently excused, as we said, from school. Now, was that was it a sense that with Adam out of sight, out, out of mind, Barbara? There's something else that's very important about Connecticut, is that in about 44 of the other states in the U.S., we have civil commitment procedures. In other words, when Adam was getting out of control and Adam was becoming violent, anybody, a teacher, a neighbor, a parent, anybody in the community can call the authorities and have the person picked up against their will to be evaluated. And if they are psychiatrically deemed to be to have a mental illness such that they are a danger to themselves or the community welfare, they can be hospitalized. They can be forcibly medicated. 
they can be protected and protect society. Connecticut is not one of those states and continues to not be one of those states. So it had come to a point where Adam had aged out of whatever authority the school people had, and now there was, there was nothing that could be done about his behavior. And that's the theme that we keep returning to, isn't it, in, in a lot of the cases that we've looked at, is the idea of the privacy of the family. And if you have got that wall, that, that closed front door, you know, behind which other people aren't entitled to go, you know, either morally or legally, you know, it is the barrier behind which, you know, these types of cases can escalate. And it's clear, Barbara, from the yourself and Liz, that what's happening is that she finally gets the results she wants. There's no more anti-anxiety med- medication. There's no further therapy. He's at home under her full control. But I think it's like the old cliche, be careful what you want, you may get it. Because Adam's deterioration was escalating alarmingly. And he was even isolating himself from her. The teenaged Adam Lanzan now descends into a solitary fantasy world. He indulges in playing violent video games and often discusses acts of violence with various online communities. As he gets older, he blacks out his bedroom windows and very rarely leaves the room. Eventually, he will only communicate with his mom by email. Journalist Elaine Griffin describes the situation. Three months before the shooting, Adam was isolated in his room, door locked, windows blocked with black plastic bags, and he was playing games. He was playing these video games. He was involved in these violent virtual games that showed death and destruction. So it's hard to know how those games played a role in the shooting, but that seemed to be his only world. He was involved in these violent games, and that's all he saw. He saw these games that led to the highest number of shots and the biggest number of kills and and how he could become sort of the master of the kill. And that's what he spent all of his time doing. How could his mother, Nancy, who was so desperate to be uber-controlling over his world, could now allow him to dictate communications by email? Well, we don't know what goes on behind the blacked-out windows and the walls of that family home. And... Given what I know about other circumstances similar to the Lanzas, I would suggest that he may have become violent to Nancy and uncontrollable, and there may have been instances where he was kind of trying to assert himself, and she was losing that control, and perhaps she was afraid of him at that point. But I think the the most interesting thing for me is that that you know if he is you know behind you know his bedroom door you know abs- absorbing himself in these these virtual worlds, I think maybe the boundary between fantasy and reality is starting to blur for him. I totally agree with Liz. I believe that is exactly what was going on for him. Of course, that is what happens in psychosis. But at this really, really deteriorating point for Adam. He wasn't living in reality anymore. He was living in a virtual world of violence. He was living in a virtual cyber world where you can kill an opponent and two seconds later reboot the game and kill them again. And he just at that point had no no more relatedness to any 
person, any place, anything that would have constituted cause and effect in a real world. Was Nancy in denial once again? Is she thinking every kid's playing these kind of games necessarily without any severe consequences? We'll never know what Nancy was thinking, but what we can opine is that whatever she was thinking was clearly unrealistic and dysfunctional. I think perhaps at that point she was in a state of confusion herself. What could she do? The son she was trying to control, she was in a way losing him to this fantasy world, but perhaps she felt that might be better than losing him to the real world. And what were the options for Nancy? The only thing that Nancy could have done, barring going in there and trying to convince him to get mental health care, which of course she wasn't thinking about and he wouldn't have been interested in getting, would have been to call the police. And that is the absolute hardest thing for a parent, whether they are sane or not, to do is to call the police on their child. After years of witnessing Adam's decline, Nancy did at last resolve to do something about it. She decided that he should attend a special school which could help him become a little more self-sufficient. But Adam would never eventually attend it. On the 14th of December 2012, Adam killed 27 people, including his mother. He then shot himself. Did he just snap Barbara? This is the most horrible and most disappointing thing that I have to face as a clinician is that people don't snap. All of these crimes, in my opinion, are preventable. Adam was a a killer in the making from the first day that his mother embarked on this inability to, to get treatment for him or to follow up treatment for him. And once he made that break with reality, I mean, he was insane. He was not responsible for his actions. But the fact is, the results of his actions are the same tragedy. So if Adam had gotten, by the time he was eight or nine years old, the right kind of medication, the right kind of treatment, if his family would have gotten the support and the intervention they needed to know how to manage him, I don't think we would be talking about Adam Lanza now. I absolutely agree with with Barbara when when it comes to this idea of snapping. I think we like to believe that people snap. We don't like to believe that that people's behaviour escalates and we don't notice that happening. We do want to buy into this, oh, they had this moment of madness and the red mist came down and they just went and committed this atrocity. No, it's an escalation. It's incremental stages in which their behaviour crosses one boundary, then another boundary, uh, and, and then you arrive at, at these, these terrible tragedies. Barbara, he could have just gone to the school if that was part of his narrative, his fantasy in his head. Why did he choose to take out his mother first? Well, one of the things you look at with Adam Lanza is that he was looking for perpetual care from his mother. It was toxic care, but it allowed him to never have to be responsible for himself. And perhaps when she changed her M.O., when she started to become frightened or fatigued or confused about how to handle him and she started going away and she started just not taking care of him and neglecting that kind of devouring mothering, he might have gone into a rage and it might have connected with with all of the the paranoid thinking and rage-filled thinking he had 
by the fact that his whole life was taken over by his mother. So to, to the extent that if he didn't have access to arms, as he wouldn't have in this country, how else would this have manifested itself? You know, we like to, and particularly in our country, say gun control and gun violence. And that, that is very true. But behind that is the person who pulls the trigger. And I think Adam, with the Internet, with Internet communities, would have had access to uh, creating bombs or almost any other way that he might have fireworks, explosive things, that he might have been able to inflict that same kind of damage. I mean, the preventive spot had to be inside of Adam's heart and soul and inside of what we could do to help Adam deal with his illness. He denies symptoms. But I I think the operant here is Nancy is entangled with him. Nancy is devouring. Nancy is controlling. If Adam had been from a lower class family, if Adam had been from a minority family, would there have been more forcible intervention? And I would completely say yes because Adam's behavior would have been looked at as more pathologically than the way it was looked at because he came from a wealthy family in a lovely suburb. Now, in relation to this, as we wind up, into terms of the nature and nurture argument, and if you could distill this for us, Barbara, because I know we tapped upon this before. When you have an egregious, really, really troubled young man like Adam Lanza, it doesn't come about by either nurture or nature. They're not mutually exclusive. It has to be a perfect storm of having a genetic predisposition. He had a mother who was obsessed and dysfunctional. He had an absent sort of disinterested father. He had people in school who were missing the mark or passing him along. And then he was introduced to guns and violence and a violent cyber world. Perfect brew. If you had set out to make an Adam Lanza, you couldn't have done it any more perfectly. Um, thank, thank you, Barbara. Liz, your final words on that theme? Yeah, I, I entirely agree with that. You've got, you've got several different factors all coming together to create this, this perfect storm. So you've got the individual impairments that, that Adam may well have come into the world already carrying. And then you've got the, the family factors and the community factors and the social factors that all mix together to, to create what he became. Well, thank you to my guest, Professor Elizabeth Yardley and Dr. Barbara Kerwin. And of course, you can watch the full documentary of Murderers and Their Mothers, Adam Lanza, on CBS Reality at 10pm on the 18th of September. From me, Donald McIntyre, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.